All right, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, and in this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 8. Let's just set that in context. In the last section, 5, 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews began to deal with Jesus' role as high priest and began to develop that in some detail. And the main points he made were that Jesus' humanity and suffering makes him a merciful high priest who can sympathize with us, and that he was appointed to that role as high priest by God himself. Now, he's got a whole lot more he wants to say about Jesus' high priesthood and its connection to Melchizedek, which he quoted there in chapter 5, verse 6, and he'll come back to all of that here in a bit, but he breaks off his explanation of Jesus' high priesthood in order to call his readers to press on. So here in this section, 5.11 through 6.8, he begins another lengthy exhortation section, calling to action section, urging the readers to press on to maturity and don't fall away. This recording is actually like part one of that exhortation. The next recording will be part two of that. And so we break off from the explanation of Jesus' high priesthood, push pause on that and say, all right then, let me just call you to press on to maturity. So let's begin in verse 11. Here's how he begins to call them to press on. He says, concerning him, that is Melchizedek and the Messiah's high priesthood, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's difficult to explain since you have become poor listeners. So he'll come back to Melchizedek in Jesus' high priesthood in chapter 7, and he'll explain quite a bit more about Melchizedek. But first, as we noted, he wants to challenge the readers, and he says he has a lot to say about this, but it's hard to explain because they've become poor listeners, and that phrase, poor listeners, is actually more literally dull of hearing, which has to do not just with being poor listeners per se, but really an unwillingness to listen. They don't want to make the effort to listen and to learn and understand. They're dull. And that word dull, no Roy in Greek, is the idea of sluggish or lazy. They're lazy listeners. That's the idea. And then he goes on in verse 12 to point out one of the results of that, one of the results of being dull of hearing. He says in verse 12, for... Though by this time you ought to be teachers, notice that, that he, he figures they've been believers long enough and followers of Jesus long enough that they should have learned enough that they could be passing on the faith to others. They, they've had enough time that they ought to be teachers. But he says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. The idea is that uh, they've been following Jesus long enough that they should know enough to teach other people, but because they are dull of hearing, because they're lazy listeners, don't want to put forth the effort to learn, they still need to be taught themselves. And what do they need to be taught according to verse 12? Well, they need to be taught the elementary principles. The uh, Greek word behind that, stoikia, has the basic meaning of basic ideas, sort of like the ABCs. Before you can learn to read, you got to learn the basics. 
ABCs. You got to learn your alphabet, right? So the idea of the word is any of the foundational things of something, be it school, be it religion or whatever it is, there are some foundational ideas, foundational teachings, foundational things you have to learn. Now, let me just, as a bit of an aside, in some contexts where this word is used in the New Testament and later, after the time period of the New Testament, there is some evidence that it refers to elementary spirits, the, the basic spiritual powers over the elements of the word, world is the idea. But here, in this context, in Hebrews chapter 5, it clearly has its, its usual meaning of basic principles, since he calls it elementary teaching in chapter 6, verse 1, and he uses the imagery of babies and maturity. So we're talking about fundamental elementary things you need to learn. And so they've had enough time, they ought to be teachers, but it's like they need to go back to elementary school all over again is the idea. And notice he calls it the elementary principles of the actual words of God. That phrase, actual words of God, literally is oracles. It's a word that refers to divine utterances, a communication from God. It's actually only used four times in the New Testament and all refer to specific inspired utterances from God. So it's used in Acts chapter 7 verse 38 when Moses heard and passed on the words of God. It's used in Romans chapter 3 verse 2 for the Jews being entrusted with the oracles of God. It's used here in Hebrews 5. And then it's used again in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, that when someone speaks on behalf of God, they should speak as if they're sharing the very utterances of God. And so they need to learn the basic teachings of God's word all over again, he says. And, and it's like they need milk, he says, not solid food. In other words, they're like babies. Um, and they still need baby food, milk. Um, they don't haven't progressed to solid food like people who are grown up, right? Verse 13 and 14 develops this idea of milk and solid food. So look at verse 13. It says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness for he is an infant. He's a baby. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to distinguish good and evil. So he uses the imagery of babies versus grown-ups. And babies, they drink only milk. Grown-ups, they eat solid food. And the point of the imagery is that the readers are sort of like babies. And he says, if someone is like stuck on milk, they're unacquainted with the word of righteousness. In other words, they haven't progressed to solid food. They're just kind of like clear back there with baby food of uh, God's teaching and God's word. Now, solid food, that's for people who are grownups. That's for the mature. And this is how he describes them. Those people have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. Uh, that is, they've grown up enough and through practice, he says, they've learned how to distinguish good things from evil things. Even when the word of God doesn't directly address the situation, they know how to take the word of God and put it into practice and apply it to life, and they can distinguish between good and evil. He feels like the original uh, audience here should be in that stage of maturity and thus able to teach others. 
but they're still stuck on milk and they really don't even understand then uh, the full meaning of and the full depth of the word of God. So the author is saying, I want to teach you some more advanced doctrines to help you understand Jesus' high priesthood more. But it's like you need to be taught the ABCs all over again. I want to give you some good, solid teaching about Jesus, but you're still only drinking milk. And so then what he does is he calls them to move on, to move ahead on to maturity. So chapter 6, verse 1, really the chapter break is unfortunate because we're still in the same conversation, and that's made clear by the reference to elementary teaching again. So he says in chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, drawing out an implication from what he just said, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, and when you say leaving the elementary teaching, it doesn't mean that you leave it behind as if never to utilize it again. It means you move on beyond it. Like it's time to, you can't just stay with repeating your alphabet all day long. You, you've got to move on to putting into practice and learning some other things. So leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Messiah, the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And notice when he says press on to maturity, he includes himself in that us. Let us press on to maturity. He's moving on to maturity. He wants the original readers to move on to maturity. This is something we all do together. And the phrase press on is actually better be carried ahead. The verb is actually from the Greek word pharaoh, which means to carry. And so it's the idea of being guided along into or nurtured along into or moved ahead into maturity, be carried ahead into maturity. And so he's calling them to be nurtured or carried on into maturity. And then he lists off six categories of elementary teachings, the foundational doctrines they should have nailed down by now. And so he says, not laying again a foundation. Like, we don't keep building the foundation. Let's build the rest of the house. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and about the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And so six categories of elementary teachings, repentance from dead works. Repentance is the idea of changing your mind that leads to a change of action. It's making a U-turn is the idea. You change the way you view and think about things and that leads to a change of behavior. So you're turning away from dead works. Faith towards God, we get that. It's a foundational principle, right? Putting our trust in God. And then he says instruction about washings. And that word washings is one of the words for like related to the word baptism in the New Testament. And so then scholars have wrestled with what does he mean by this? And it's actually a bit curious because the specific word he uses for washings here, baptismas, uh, is never used in the New Testament for baptism itself. That word that's used for baptism itself is baptisma. So slightly different form of the word. And the other thing that's curious about it here is it's in the plural, baptisms or washings. So why is it in the plural? Well, it's probably in the plural because uh, it's being used to compare Christian baptism to some of the other baptisms or washings of the day that they would have been familiar with and to help clarify the differences between them, and hence plural, and hence the unique form. Uh, baptismas, the word we have here in the plural, is regularly used for like 
Jewish ritual washings and some of that. And so that's my guess is the reason he uses this particular form of the word is to say, you should have learned by now to understand Christian baptism in distinction from, say, Jewish ritual washings that happen on a regular basis, or maybe even other baptisms they were familiar with, like proselyte baptism, or maybe even John the Baptist baptism and some of that. And so it's a word that's being used to basically say all those other kinds of washings compared to Christian baptism. That's a foundational teaching you should have figured out by now. Then the next one, number four, is laying on of hands. And we see that, for example, in the book of Acts, when the apostles commission people to ministry, they lay their hands on them and pray for them. We see it referred to in 1 Timothy with regards to elders laying on of the hands. And so they should have had that figured out by now. Number five is resurrection from the dead, including Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection. And then lastly, number six is eternal judgment. Um, that they that's part of the elementary teachings that they should have a grasp on by now. And judgment is eternal in that it's final and everlasting, right? And so they should have that figured out that there's going to be a judgment day and the effects of it is going to be eternal. So he calls them to leave behind such elementary teachings and to move ahead onto maturity. And then he says, and this we will do, verse 3, if God permits. And this really is a word of assurance. It's the idea of God willing, right? Like it's a recognition of God's sovereignty, that all of life is experienced under the sovereignty of God. And so, look, we can move ahead if God permits, God willing. And it's very standard. In fact, I have a friend who uh, is fluent in Arabic, was born in the Middle East, and she still sort of has this tendency in a lot of circumstances of life to say, you know, God willing. And so uh, that's the idea here. This is a word of assurance that we can do this. We'll move on, God willing. Then he goes on, in verses 4 and following of chapter 6, to give a very strong warning about the seriousness of all this. In fact, about the seriousness of falling away. This warning in verse 4 begins, notice, with the word for, for it is impossible, dot, 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 right? And so it begins with the word for, meaning it's explaining why it's so important to move ahead into maturity rather than going backwards back to Judaism. Now, this section in verses 4 and following is actually one of the more challenging warnings against apostasy in the book of Hebrews and really in the entire New Testament. And it's caused commentators, Bible teachers, believers of all theological stripes to wrestle with what's actually being said here and what does he mean. So it's a little bit of a difficult section. So I want to read the whole thing so we can have the whole thing in front of us and hear it. Then I want to make some comments on various phrases throughout the section. And then I will, I'll come back at the end to tie up some of the loose ends. So here's what it says in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, some of it 
uh, it's probably fairly clear and seems fairly obvious. But some of it is like, well, what does he actually mean by that? So let's just hit some of the phrases throughout this. He begins by describing a certain group of people, and he describes them with uh, technically five aorist participles in Greek. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but participle is just a verbal adjective. So he's describing people that have done something, right? Um, and there's five of these descriptions. He says, they have once been enlightened. And so that's, they have been enlightened. Uh, you cross-reference that with Hebrews 10.32, and it describes uh, in 10.32 their conversion with this very word. So this word is associated with conversion, with becoming a believer. They've been enlightened, and they have come to faith in Jesus. Number two, the second description is they have uh, tasted the heavenly gift. Taste means to consume something, to experience something, uh, Look again at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, Jesus tasted death. Like he experienced it fully and completely, right? And so these people have tasted, they've experienced the very heavenly gift of salvation. Uh, the third description is they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Sharers in it is the idea of partakers. They've experienced and shared in the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, number four, they have tasted, again, experienced and consumed the good word of God, the message of God about Jesus and his Messiah and the powers of the age to come. They've experienced uh, the, the already uh, gift of the powers of the age to come. And then number five, and they have fallen away. So they've had all these experiences of a conversion in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the age to come and, and all of that, and they have fallen away. And it's parallel to the others. That is, it's not simply saying if that could happen, but we know it can. It's just saying, no, this is what this, this group of people has done. He's describing this group of people with these five parallel phrases. They've done this, they've done this, they've done this. And one of the things they've done is they've fallen away. So in every way, these five descriptions are painting a picture of those who are part of the people of God in Christ. They've experienced everything God has to give them in Christ, and yet at the same time, they have fallen away. Also notice that the author of Hebrews doesn't use we or us or our. He was using it before and he'll use it later, but he doesn't use it here. Why? Well, he's describing people who do this, but he is careful not to say that the readers have done this. They haven't gone this far. They haven't fallen away. He's just describing a group of people and what happens when they do this. But he distinguishes the original readers from that group. Then, notice, the main thing he says is, for this group of people, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's like the main clause of this whole sentence. It is impossible to renew or restore them to repentance again. Well, in what way? Like, how is it impossible to restore them to repentance? Uh, one question related to that is, impossible for whom? Like impossible for God or impossible for people? Uh, and both views have actually been expressed throughout church history. 
Um, like it's impossible for God to either restore them or to welcome them back. Some have feared that, what are you saying? God won't welcome them back. And certainly God is the judge, but it's difficult to say that God won't let an apostate repent when he wants to in view of the entire testimony of the scriptures. I mean, look at the history of Israel and all their unfaithfulness and how patient God was and his repeated mercy and all of that. And indeed, it doesn't say it's impossible for someone to repent or that God won't welcome the repentant person back. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says it's impossible to renew them or it's impossible to restore them to repentance. And so that's an important distinction. Hang on to that. The other option is people. Is it saying it's impossible for people um, to deal with them? And pastorally, this actually makes a lot of sense, right? Like after someone has experienced all the goodness of God in Christ, experienced the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, like what could any person say or do to restore them to repentance, right? And that's what it says. It's impossible to restore them. So pastorally, what could you or I say to somebody who's experienced all of that that would be different or new or might move them to repentance? And so is that what it means? Well, maybe. Then the question is, is that really what the language is actually getting at? And I think so, but I'm not 100% certain. So let's keep going down through the text and get the next phrase, and then I'll try to tie up some loose ends here at the end, all right? And so after describing the group of people, saying it's impossible to restore them to repentance, then he actually gives another participle describing the crux of what it is they're doing. They're crucifying the Son of God and putting him to open shame. And the way it's translated here in this translation is, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That translation understands the participle, crucifying and putting, understands those two participles as causal. That is, giving a reason why it's impossible. Since they do this again, right? Giving a reason why it's impossible to renew them to repentance. But, It could be temporal, as long as, right? Like it's impossible to renew them to repentance as long as they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Grammatically, uh, both are accurate and both are possible. So here's what I'm in favor of as we begin to tie up loose ends. I'm in favor of, in this difficult text, leaving the language as undefined as It literally is. Let's leave the participle undefined, crucifying again the Son of God and putting him to open shame. It likely expresses the reason it's impossible to restore them to repentance, but that reason is a specific action, and thus the impossibility is removed once they quit doing it. And so that temporal sense is involved in the language as well, right? Like, As long as they do this, it's just not going to be possible. And so causal and temporal probably are actually both uh, involved in the nature of that participle here. Let's leave it undefined for that reason. And as for who it's impossible for, right? Like it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Who's it impossible for? Well, it doesn't say, again, to emphasize, it's impossible to repent. It says it's impossible to restore them to repentance, which speaks of someone else doing something for them 
that causes them to repent. And I suspect that's true for either God or for us. God won't force them to repent. God's always worked that way. He'll call them, he'll woo them, right? But he won't force them to repent. And as I noted above, pastorally, we can't say anything new to make them to repent. We can pray, um, we can be available for conversation, we can be ready to answer questions when they have them, but until their heart changes, what more can we say? Um, and so it's going to require a change of heart on their part because while they're turning their back on the only Savior after having followed him, they are, in effect, crucifying him all over again. And so I think that's what this passage is actually getting at and saying. And here's what I know for certain. When I read these verses, I don't want to fall away. It sobers me to the seriousness of it all. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is after. This is serious. And by falling away, you've put yourself in serious jeopardy. You've re-crucified and publicly shamed the Messiah, God's anointed king. That's a big deal. And so this warning, as the author of Hebrews couches it, is basically a warning to the original readers who aren't included in this group yet, but he's saying, you're heading that direction. Think about what you're about to do and think about what that means. And so he ends, after that warning, he ends this section by painting a word picture that graphically portrays the seriousness of the situation. Here's what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and produces vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Like, the blessings of God fall upon this ground because it's gotten rain, it's been tilled, it's been prepared, and it grows useful things. That's the way it's supposed to work. That ground has been blessed and it can bring forth useful things. Well, the same is true for people who have received all these blessings from God, who have experienced his goodness, been partakers of the Holy Spirit, uh, taken in and experienced his word and all that he's described in verses one through three, that blessing and the blessing of the elementary teachings and all of that, that blessing should lead to yielding mature fruit in followers of Jesus' lives. But if it doesn't, well, if it doesn't, verse 8, if it yields thorns and thistles, probably an allusion to ground cursed at the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless. It's not producing anything helpful or good. It's worthless. It's close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. And so those who have received all this blessing but aren't bearing good fruit are subject to condemnation just like ground that, that receives the rain but only produces thorns and thistles and weeds. And as I said, that thorns and thistles uh, probably is an allusion to the ground cursed at the fall. That's the reason for uh, the cursed language here. It's close to being cursed, just like that ground, and ends up being burned. Uh, in my cultural context where I live, one of the things that um, happens in various places in the irrigation ditches and around sometimes the edges of the farmer's fields is they're out there with a propane torch burning the weeds down um, early in late winter, early in the spring. And so to try to control those weeds before they 
you know, they can take over the field. That's the picture here is this ground is close to being burned. And so the implications of this text and this warning here from 5.11 all the way down through 6.8 is that that followers of Jesus need to press on, need to go on to maturity. Don't just, you know, receive the initial gift of salvation and receive the initial teaching and just stay there. Like camp out there as like a new believer, a baby Christian. No, you've got to, you've got to intentionally put yourself in a place where you can be carried along to maturity. And so that's one of the implications of this warning is be aware that um, there is a path to maturity, and as a follower of Jesus, we need to walk that path so we continually grow up to the point where we have our senses trained to discern, to discern good and evil, where we're capable of explaining to others the things of the faith and helping younger believers than us grow on to maturity as well, right? All the things he's talked about here, we need to go on to maturity. And then the other implication of this, uh, this warning here is really just the seriousness of falling away. Like, if you've come to faith in Jesus, and you've experienced everything he has, and you've been a part of the people of God, you've been there, you've, you've been baptized, you've taken communion, you've enjoyed uh, the fellowship of the saints, right? You've experienced all the things of the goodness of God in Christ, and then just turn your back on it and walk away from it. That's not a small little lighthearted thing. That's like crucifying Jesus all over again. That's like putting Jesus, the Messiah, the God's anointed king, putting him to open uh, shame and treating him with disregard. And that's a big deal. And that should be taken seriously by ourselves um, and in our churches. And we should warn people of those things when we, we sense that people are thinking about that. It's like, think about what you're doing. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, think about the seriousness of what you're doing and the position that puts you in. And so falling away is a real danger and a serious danger at that. All right, thanks for tuning in to the Listener's Commentary on the Book of Hebrews. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So to those of you who make this ministry possible, thanks a ton for your support. Thanks a ton for your prayers. And if you've been impacted by this ministry and want to join the team of supporters, there is a link down in the notes below where you can set up a one-time or recurring gift, or you can go to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and you can set up a monthly recurring donation or give a one-time gift right there. Let me just say in advance, thanks a ton for your support. It is quite literally having an impact in the lives of people all around the world. So thanks a ton. And God bless you for it.